0: So on a national basis, though, Walmart is still, I would say, the center of gravity in the grocery industry. They have monopoly uh, control of hundreds of metro areas, mostly smaller towns, smaller cities, primarily in the middle of the country, but also drifting out uh, into the upper Midwest and the Southwest and the Southeast. Um, Walmart has a deleterious impact on every aspect of the grocery industry. When we talk about pricing, you may not be shopping at a competitor Walmart, but your grocery store competes with somebody who competes with Walmart, guaranteed. And what that means is there's price pressure on what their retail prices are, there's pressure on their wages downward because Walmart, even though they've raised wages, still does not pay a living wage.
1: Welcome to the Real Organic podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops that are grown in healthy soils and organic livestock that is raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Errol Schweitzer, a journalist and podcast host with decades of experience in natural food sales, including a long run with Whole Foods Market, where he led a regional merchandising team Errol's views on the effects of consolidation in the food system from his position as an employee are especially compelling to farmers like me, who often deal with the empty promises of local food PR campaigns. Retail operations want to be seen supporting us, but often don't end up giving us the price points or marketplace guarantees that we need to run our businesses successfully. Errol's thoughts about this kind of greenwashing and more will be featured in our upcoming symposium, Break Em Up, The Chickenization of Organic. Session one will be broadcast with live breakout sessions on Sunday, March 17th from 3 to 5 Eastern. You can find out all the details by visiting our main menu of our website, realorganicproject.org. And if you're speedy, you can get 20% off your tickets until Saturday, February 24th.
2: Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm talking today Thank with you. Errol Schweitzer, and Errol, I'm I'm pleased I'm pleased to have this conversation. I've been listening to some of your interviews with other people on your podcast, which I recommend to people and um, the Checkout it is called, and you've you've really interviewed a lot of a lot of great people. Um, one of your focuses is about the consolidation in in the retail space of food, and one of your focuses about labor practices. I'd like to talk about labor practices another day, but today, I'd like to I'd like to talk about what's what's happening with consolidation and monopoly in the food space, and in your case, particularly in the retail space. So, can you just give us a little bit of um, a little bit of background about? how you came to be interested in this, how you came to be in the food space?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I was a biology major um, when I was in uh, college. I'm a graduate of the uh, New York City and New York State public education system and um, realized I did not want to be pre-med. I've been working uh, part-time to you know pay the bills as a deli um, you know, clerk, uh, grill cook, you know all the all the campus food service stuff, and then I discovered we had a little independent, volunteer-run food co-op on campus. Um, and at the time, I was also sort of going through my own little awakening, um, you know, thinking about food and society, and you know, I was uh, really involved at the time in the 1990s upstate New York or New York hardcore punk scene, which for those folks who are familiar with music, know that we had a very vibrant scene in the 90s, and uh, help politicize me. And um, I started hanging around the food co-op a lot. Um, and I, I, I went on the five-year plan, it took me a while to graduate, barely graduated, um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I just started working jobs, lots of jobs, um, retail, wholesale, did community organizing around food and environmental justice and tenant organizing. Um, I did every kind of weird uh, blue collar job you can do uh, when you're just, you know, just trying to pay the rent, landscaping, construction, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, I was also an EMT for a while. I did 2,000 hours um, as an EMT when I was up in Binghamton. So I eventually found my way to Whole Foods. And I thought I was just going to stay there for a couple months or maybe a couple years at, at most, um, especially since I had done a bunch of retail already, a lot of grocery. And I, I was kind of like iffy on it. Um, but I ended up staying there mostly because I really love the people I was working with. And my, my first or second day on the job, I was talking to my assistant manager. Um, What's up, Howard Schwartz. How you doing out there, Howard? And I was asking Howard, I was like, why do you do this? Why do you work for this big company and you know, you're dealing with all this bullshit every day? And he's like, you know, man, I'm just here to feed the people. I want to feed the people as much organic as I can. And I looked at him, and I was like, is this this clown like telling the truth? And he was. I got to know him really well, and he was really committed. Which is what happened with a lot of the folks from my era of Whole Foods. They were really committed to expanding the access of organic and natural and healthy foods. Um, and I'm not going to talk about our leadership, you know, and our CEOs, and you know, all the things that you know they say. I'm going to talk about the people I worked with. And uh, a lot of them are still my closest friends. You know, they love what they do. And they kept me kept me there for too many years. I was at Whole Foods for 14 years. I moved up and around. Um, I was asked to apply to, to jobs after a while. So I was asked to apply to be a regional grocery director in the Northeast, which is the New York region. Um, and then um, I did okay there um, by implementing a whole bunch of the merchandising practices that, that you know, made the company money by also getting to sell better food and partnering with a more diverse array of suppliers. So I was asked to apply to be on the uh, national team. Um, and I was on the national team for nine years. And we had three uh, program pillars that we did. We negotiated EDLP, everyday low price programs with large multinational CPGs to make sure we're getting the best price for our customers. We had a really vibrant and diverse category management program for launching new products primarily from smaller and mid-sized brands that we worked really closely with local foragers to find uh, smaller companies and grow them into national partners and we did that with dozens of companies and then we had a national promotions program to um, you know put more stuff on sale and make sure that you know we were um, you know just you know putting things at a value price our average price, in our department at the time was three dollars and 49 cents so i know there was a lot of pr about how expensive whole foods was and continues to be but our department which was center store um, really carried the company in terms of the gross margin by pricing things uh, reasonably and by selling a lot of organic foods a lot of ethically sourced foods and so i left whole foods in 2016 Um, I was pushed out in a wave of layoffs that happened in in that era where you saw a lot of people coming in from larger companies, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, etc. And this is about 18 months before Amazon acquired it. And um, I I could probably go into great detail about what business practices led to Whole Foods being acquired by Amazon. But since then, um, I've worked for at least uh, a dozen retail competitors to Whole Foods, primarily co-ops and independents. Um, I've worked with probably two dozen emerging and startup CPG companies, primarily organic, primarily you know women and uh, people of color owned. Um, and I've also stayed um, active in my community and food policy board, uh, food access work, particularly during COVID-19. Um, and I have a podcast called The Checkout and I was asked to be a Forbes contributor. Um, which I've done now for a couple of years. So I uh, appreciate being here. And I'm a big fan of Real Organic Project. Uh, we have a lot of friends in common.
2: So this is really interesting. I, I have also a long relationship with Whole Foods. Uh, we started selling to Bread and Circus a long time ago.
0: That's before and, my time.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then and then they got acquired, of course, by, by Whole Foods. And interestingly for us, that that was from my farm. That was not a bad acquisition because uh bread and circus was a tough nut to deal with as a as a supplier, and Whole Foods was nicer. And it was moving into that period, your period, when Whole Foods was working pretty hard to bring in local producers, and frankly, most stores were. They were following the lead of Whole Foods. So it was interesting to see that, you know, Hannaford sent a film career here, and so did Shaw's and you know, everybody wow. wanted to show that they were getting local, and Stop and Shop loved us. That's all gone. That's all gone. Uh, none of those people are interested in local. They certainly aren't interested in regional. You know, they're pretty much national buyers now. And I'm just curious: from
0: does that does that ring true for you? Do you do you see that shift? Yeah. Well, I mean, the continued consolidation of the industry, which we could talk about, but also the fact that they're not getting as much public pressure as they were 15, 20 years ago. And I also think there was a generation of us in the industry who were pushing for that, um, who, you know, just felt like we could do better. But also we were sort of bored by by the status quo. And, you know, I don't mean to be flipping about it because the status quo is also devastating to the environment, unfair to workers and not really good for the consumer either. And so I think there was a movement afoot in the industry that I think is really tailed off at retail. I think for a while, Um, There were enough of us in retail who were pushing the envelope to make retailers, I'd say a leader, because I think some retailers have always been leaders, like, you know, a lot of independents and cooperatives, but to get even the larger organizations to play more fairly and at least try to be a bit more sustainable, which was really difficult with these internal cultures and their their profitability needs and just general conservatism towards, you know, any kind of progressive uh, food system change. And I think that's really gone now. You know, you see a lot of PR, a lot of greenwash, uh, but not a lot of substantive actions. You know, they say, "Oh, we sell a lot more healthy food, we sell a lot more fresh food," and then pictures of random commodity growers. Um, and there is not really a substantive effort, which is something I detailed in a recent uh, interview I did for the Guardian about you know certain um, on, on you know on shelf attributes like local and just how sort of commodified and abstract that's become. It has real no meaning. Um, not to say that it had a meaning when I was working there, I'm saying that we were trying to assign it something substantive through the work we were doing with suppliers, with supply chains, um, you know, really rebuilding them from scratch primarily as uh, to change the trajectory of the American food system. I don't say that lightly because a lot of us put a, a lot of time and effort and blood and sweat into that. Um and didn't always weren't always successful. And I would say right now we're seeing the fact that on an institutional level of a, a lot of us weren't successful because um, the institutions themselves refused to to change after a certain point. And and we saw a big reaction, particularly driven by Wall Street profitability needs, but also um, you know just general malaise. Like, oh, we can't really make much more money on this, so why are we trying so hard? We're not getting that much pushback from customers, and we could just give them just enough to keep them happy and quiet and you know, we could do a little PR to, you know, you know, get the, uh, keep the activists off our back. So just in general, I'm a lot more skeptical about the the role that retailers can play in improving the food system right now.
2: All right. Let me ask you a question. Cause you said something I actually hadn't considered, which is that a lot of this movement towards buying local and it, it was, it was not just greenwash. I mean, I saw it that the, that the, the the chains in the Northeast were absolutely scrambling to buy local, to open their doors to local suppliers. And and I thought, wow, things are looking up. This is great to see that the food system is changing. And I think you just suggested that that change was primarily coming from the people who are working within the system, within the companies, that there was a group of people, fairly activist, motivated people who said, we can do better. Let's buy, let's buy local food from farmers, as opposed to just this pressure from eaters, from consumers to say, this is what we want. You're, you're saying that actually this change was being led by a, a fairly
0: enlightened group of mid-level managers within these companies. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us came up through the organizations. We started out as clerks and we started out in food co-ops or farmer's markets. I've worked on farms. I've done, you know, stuff outside of traditional retail. And then we had folks who came from traditional retail, you know, bigger, bigger grocers that are like, ugh, I hated that. I want to do something different. Um, so I can give, I'm going to give a couple shout outs. I'm going to give a shout out to David Lafferty, who's still at Whole Foods, who's who's still in my, in my mind, you know, bucking the system, keeping it real. I'm going to give a shout out to Jamie Nessel. Who is now the chief merchant at Byright She was also in my generation of merchandisers at Whole Foods. Give a shout out to Kara Rubin, who uh, took the Northeast region uh, grocery reins after I left and took it to all new heights in terms of percent of products that were organic and the amount of you know local and diverse suppliers uh, that they were supporting for well over a decade. And Kara actually was pushed out the same month I was. Um, and then you know we had dozens of local foragers around the company that. You know, the foragers were always the first wave of layoffs at Whole Foods. I'll just say that they were great for PR. They they, they brought in these people that were all heart and soul. They weren't merchants. They're were, they were more like social workers for for emerging brands and farmers. Errol, um, let me products. interrupt just so you can oh, explain because people don't know. What's a forager in Whole Foods? A forager is just someone who scouts the marketplace in a given radius looking for local brands, local products, local producers. So it's different than the job that I did as um, category merchant, um, you know, you know, grocery director, where I was responsible for the profit and loss. I was responsible for the financial performance. And I figured out, I learned how to achieve those numbers, those financial targets through merchandising better food. Local foragers didn't necessarily have an easier job because they were tasked with finding a lot of that stuff, but then they had to work with people like me to merchandise them into our stores, into our sets, into our supply chains. So um, Harv Singh in, in Norcal is a pretty well-known local forager. Um, Denise Briley in Seattle, uh, who just I think was pushed out recently by Whole Foods. Um, these are folks who are just like, like I said, all heart and soul. They 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 gave so much of their energy to developing these local supplier relationships, which I think is really contrary to how much of retail works day to day. Which is why you know I, I feel they're kind of not a dying breed, but there's just not a lot of them. And they're mostly used as PR these days because they're they're not um, put in a position of power or influence. They're more just put in a position of public relations. Um, and I think that was a little different ten or fifteen years ago because we had a lot of them. They were all over the place and they were bringing in a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Okay. So
2: you you mentioned a lot of people who were pushed out. How did that happen? Why? Why? Why was the why was the corporation stepping away from this this uh, Velvet Revolution, this, this group of people who were bringing something?
0: The whole thing there. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, I think there was a lot of things changing at Whole Foods. Um, there was a lot more demands from shareholders for profitability, like bottom line, you know, EBITDA as a publicly traded company. They were demanding um, tighter G&A, general administrative spending. They were demanding that uh, the company labor budgets uh, would be lower at the time in the early 2000s. Whole Foods was spending 19% 19 cents of every dollar on labor, which is about five to six points than most other retailers. It's probably two x what Walmart spends or Trader Joe's spends. So it, you know, I'm not saying it was a workers' paradise. It, it was it was a lot of hard work, and um, it was not a it was not a unionized workplace. So there are no guarantees. There are no pensions. Um, but it was a it was a great place to work for the time being. And because of those financial pressures, those pressures on margins that were driven by the fact that mainstream retailers—Kroger, Walmart, Albertsons, Trader Joe's, uh, Stop and Shop—had jumped in headfirst into organic foods, but plugged them into their supply chains, um, you know, with their supplier relationships and their philosophies, which were much more about efficiencies and economies of scale. When you when you have a company that has two thousand stores, it's a very different economy of scale than a company with. Two stores or 20 stores or 200 or 500 stores so it's different types of supplier relationships different suppliers they pushed um, organic certifiers to conform to their needs for instance you saw a lot more uh, hydroponic products uh, coming in hydroponically grown produce those are meant to service the big channel retailers you saw organic dairy that was being sourced from CAFOs as opposed to small family farms that milk was going towards these efficiencies these economies of scale these larger retailers but what this also meant was that it pushed the price threshold down uh so not just for the consumer the consumer expected a cheaper price to get milk at walmart versus milk at whole foods or wild oats or milk at the uh, river valley co-op so they expected that but that flows downhill and what that meant was that it was lower prices for farmers and then it was also lower labor budgets which is The largest fixed expense at any business is labor. Lower labor budgets at a retail the size of Whole Foods meant a few things. It meant that we had to shrink down the full-time part-time ratio. I started at a Whole Foods at full-time and I got benefits within six weeks. That changed drastically in the next 15 years. At this point, I would say the full-time part-time ratio is maybe 40-60. And it's very rare that they hire anybody at full-time in stores. Anybody who's full-time has probably just been there a long time and has managed to survive And so the other thing they started doing was consolidating, combining teams and just piling more work and more responsibilities on a smaller number of people. And then in terms of my role in merchandising, because there were greater margin demands, there were greater demands on labor. For us, it meant we had to deliver more to the bottom line every year and not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of absolute rate, the gross margin. So from the time that I started at Whole Foods until I left, our gross margins went up by two and a half points, which is pretty unprecedented because the you know net profit margin of most retailers is maybe between one and 2% usually. So to push your gross margin up by two and a half points in your center store, your largest department, puts a ton of pressure on your suppliers. It puts a ton of pressure on your team to perform and deliver. And I'll say this, I delivered till the very last day that they walked me out of there. I was an all-star the year they, they fired me. And the reason why I got pushed out was because I didn't like the changes that were being implemented in the company. I didn't like the layoffs. I didn't like seeing friends and colleagues of mine getting pushed out of their jobs. I didn't like this talk about moving to less uh, full-time work. I didn't like the fact that they were taking power away from the stores. Um, And I didn't like the fact that the company itself wasn't executing the commitment to suppliers. So if you negotiated a program with a supplier, it was 50-50 whether it even show up in stores. Because there just wasn't was accountability from the regional executives to fulfill those obligations, and it's very different than, say, like a retailer co-op where you know the stores are contracted with the co-op service provider, like a Wakefern, to you know fulfill those contracts. For us, we were seeing a, a reluctancy, but they were happy to take the money from the suppliers. So I was very vocal about that stuff as a um, proud New York Jew. I you know always have an open big mouth. <laughs> I have no filter. <laughs> and that doesn't always go well down here in the south where everybody expects me to be polite and, um, you know, just sort of, you know, live and let live, uh, get by and no, not this guy. So um, I, I was told to no know uncertain certain terms uh, to seek happiness elsewhere. And we actually parted on, you know, it was, it was fine. It was time for me to go. But it wasn't just me, it was a whole generation of folks. And I, I say what we have now, is a diaspora of, of Whole Foods employees from that era who, you know, despite the, I think, public narrative, des- despite some of the statements and public behaviors of some Whole Foods executives are actually wonderfully committed to improving the food system or highly skilled and come from a culture at the time in retail that put the customers and the suppliers first. And you serve people in order to make your financial targets, in order to keep your lights on, in order to stay business, as opposed to managing the bottom line and managing, you know, the financials and pleasing shareholders or pleasing your, you know, the, the company owners with higher margins every period, every quarter, and managing up to their expectations, as opposed to the expectations of, you know, your stakeholders. You know, like I said, suppliers and customers. So it's a very different mindset. And there's a lot of wonderful people out there. In fact, I would say the Good Food Purchasing Program, which is a set of merchandising standards, food purchasing standards for the public sector, which is now used in over 60 public institutions across 15 cities, was co-developed by Whole Foods folks. It was co-developed by trade unionists, Teamsters, uh, NGO and food policy access um, experts, and then folks from Whole Foods who actually had experience in implementing those standards at scale in the marketplace. So once those scales hit the public sector, they were road ready. They were already able to be implemented because they had been tested in the private sector by stores like Whole Foods or natural grocers or any one of dozens, hundreds of food co-ops around the country. So, um, you know, I think it's sort of this, you know, not not really well-known dimension That there are just so many wonderful talented you know heartfelt you know um, organic natural product leaders out there that came out of retail you know and you know obviously we love farmers we love farm workers we love grocery clerks but then you have this other the sector of folks who are still out there doing the good work so you know I, i like to speak you know not say on behalf of them but just to make sure that folks understand that that's where a lot of the product that we all consume a lot of the income that farmers have that have maintained in retail are due to those efforts, not just from a couple of superstar executives or, you know, celebrities, et cetera. So, yeah, you know, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, no, no.
2: It's really interesting. People, people go to the store and it's like going to Disney world and, you know, they, they just, oh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. entertainment or they, they appreciate the amazing apparent array of choices that they have. And
0: it's, it's a bit of an illusion of choice. We could talk more about that, but yes. Yeah.
2: yeah I'd like to talk about that. But so w- one of the things that, that I think uh, whole foods catches a lot of heat and, and I'll just say for, and rightfully so. <laughs> for, well, I want to say before I say, anything,
0: apologize for whole foods on this for transparency,
2: call. They're still a big customer of mine.
0: Right. right. I'm All one right. of the, well, in advance if you I'm one of the last
2: farms standing as far as that goes that, that, yeah, you know, uh, I'll call those folks up in North Atlantic if they give you a hard time. Okay? That's right, but but uh, a lot of good things did come out of Whole Foods in terms of it. It was genuinely different from the other chains. Yes. The, the co-ops were fantastic. The co-ops have always been fantastic. It's the you know, heart and soul. It's let's what just, we let's want. Go. We want, and yeah. and I know that uh, all of these stores are hard to compete with for a little co-op. So let let's go. <laughs> First, I want to go to the Amazon buyout of Whole Foods, and th- and then I want to kind of go to why is it that we keep losing? But, but so Amazon came in, and they came in because because Whole Foods was vulnerable, right? Their their, their economic
0: was Whole Foods, So here is the dynamic that happened since two thousand thirteen. Two thousand thirteen, Whole Foods stock price peaked because that I feel was like the penultimate time frame when Whole Foods was um, taking. Active leadership role in the food system, whether it was supporting GMO labeling, uh, attempting—not necessarily successfully—attempting to open stores in you know lower-income communities, what they were calling food deserts, which I hate that term. Uh, the desert is a very diverse place, especially having you know I've lived in Texas long enough, having been out west, not a food desert um, anyway. So Whole Foods have been doing a lot of stuff with local, and because there was this mainstreaming of organic, Whole Foods started feeling price pressure from other chains and then margin pressure from Wall Street. And so what they did um, was they doubled down on value pricing saying, we're going to sell lower priced items. We're going to launch more 365 private label. Um, We're going to compete on price with these retailers that are two or three XR size. And what that did was that put pressure on the gross margins. Like I said earlier, it's a race to the bottom when you start competing on price as opposed to quality and assortment and relationships. Um, and values. So value and values, you know, are kind of mixed up a little bit when it comes to retail and not to to say that we don't need to lower prices. I could get to that later because I think price architecture is something I've written quite a bit about. But for now, I'll just say that that focus on price and competitive positioning just cascaded this whole other set of, of side effects, which continue to hurt the gross margins. Because when you go from selling all this product at or above your gross margin, which in the case of Whole Foods is like 40%, to saying we're going to switch half of our assortment to a 20% gross, that that means the other half needs to be 60% to make up for that. So by doubling down on price, they managed to sell a small percentage of high volume items cheap, but the vast majority of their prices actually went up. This is something that as a merchant, I documented every quarter, I said, all this talk about you guys lowering prices by pushing us to lower prices on these high volume items. It's the waterbed effect or the seesaw. Mm. You're actually raising prices and you're dropping tonnage. You're lowering volumes on all this other stuff and, you know, put this, these numbers in front of them every quarter, because this is what I was responsible for, I was responsible for the gross margins. I was responsible for the top line sales. We never missed in my team. We, we did whatever we could, you know, we sacrificed <laughs> our, 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 our health, our family life, our sanity. Um, to you know, keep the lights on, and you know, we we were proud of what we stood for. But it got worse and worse. The full time part time ratio, um, you know, the pressure on wages, uh, benefits, um, and just general working conditions. Just having to work sixty hours a week um, for years in order to you know, you know, accommodate you know these business demands. To the fact that some of us start getting real salty. <laughs> yeah. Um and. What happened was within the 18 months from when I left until Amazon bought them, they bought in a bunch of folks from the conventional grocery world who figured that they could just apply their learnings in conventional grocery to Whole Foods. Uh, But what all it did was it doubled down on that dynamic of pressuring the margins. And once you start pressuring the margins and you are selling a lower priced item and you don't generate more volume, you're actually hurting your top line sales too. So when you drop your, you know, blueberries from 4 99 to 2 you know, it's a $2 savings per pack. That means you have to sell, I don't know what, 40%, 60% more blueberries to make up for that in terms of units. That wasn't happening. So you saw a decline in the top line and bottom line, which affected the stock price, made them very vulnerable. Um, and um, they had been having backdoor conversations with a number of retailers, with Albertsons, uh, with Amazon for, for years in the potential buyout uh, situation. You know, I think that's the penultimate uh, goal of a lot of so-called libertarians is consolidation. They're only a libertarian until they sell out and they become, you know, and then they want to become king. And I think what you see there is that the biggest fish um, that was willing to pay, which had a lot of similar market positioning, which was Amazon, uh, high to middle, high income, you know, a lot of sort of premium positioning. uh, But their organizational philosophy was very much to where Whole Foods was going, which was to, to, you know, really put pressure on uh, workers, particularly in the blue collar jobs, to pull a lot of pressure on the merchandising teams in terms of the margins. And you see a lot of turnover in those staff positions. Um, and it was, it was kind of an easy marriage. When it wasn't really a, a surprise to those of us in the know, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Besides the fact that the Westlake store in Seattle, which is one of Whole Foods' nicest stores in Seattle, is literally across the street from Amazon HQ and was catering Amazon for years. So there was always yeah. some personal relationships anyway. And I think a lot of the um, the PR that came out at the time was dead wrong. A lot of folks were saying how good it would be for food access and expansion of uh, organic and, and how great it would be for Whole Foods. And what I don't think people realized was Amazon was buying 450 fulfillment centers. They were buying Hub and Spoke into all these other communities. And they were buying all this customer data that they now had access to so they could apply it to food, just like they, they moved from books to, uh, hardware, to, uh, you know, electronics, to apparel, and they have dominated and strip mined pretty much every other category that they've ever you know touched. Now they're moving into food. Um, and I actually, I gave an interview to Ken Roseboro from organic and non-GMO report, and I was like, you know. I was trying to give some benefit of the doubt. I said, "Yeah, this probably shows that they're interested in organic. They they bought Whole Foods, and they didn't go after you know any number of other retailers." But you got to remember, these guys are really tough employers. They are brutal on their suppliers. They are brutal on their workers, and that's been proven true. As as you see, there's always you know campaigns to unionize unionize Amazon. Um, you know they're they're pretty well known for the turnover and the really adverse working conditions. And then when you look at Whole Foods now. You know, like I said, there's still some great people there, but when you go in the stores, I swear that half the time the employees look at you like they hate you. They don't want to be there um, because those jobs are just so different. Uh, there a lot. There's just a lot more turnover. The pressure is much higher. Um, the pay is actually pretty good on an hourly basis at Whole Foods, but it's rare that you can get full time work. So even if you're getting 25 bucks an hour and you're working 20 hours a week, you need another job to survive. And so that has created this very... People.
2: They want to hold people to part time so they don't have to pay benefits. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's probably on the benefits, but it also just overall keeps the labor dollars lower because you're also increasing the turnover, meaning you're always hiring folks at lower rates mm-hmm. than your incumbent staff, which are at higher rates with great benefits. It's a very intentional. It's a very intentional policy. So it's unfortunate because there's still a lot of good stuff they do and there's still a lot of folks internally there who aren't necessarily um, on the same page as Amazon in terms of food product and quality and such. So, yeah, you know, I, I, am not, I'm not going black and white here. I think there's, there's still some, some positives, but also, you know, I'll just emphasize I've worked for probably a dozen of their competitors since I left. So, <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So one of the things that, that we see here is that there's this constant pressure it's a. It appears to be a financial pressure for things to get worse, in, in my opinion. We well, because it's
0: better for shareholders.
2: It's better for shareholders, but it seems to be worse for everyone else. Now, yeah.
0: it's the Wall Street model.
2: Yeah. So, so and and we see Amazon and 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 Whole Foods are just one consolidation, but obviously Albertsons
0: and, and
2: Kroger's and. Oh, so. Whole Foods uh, and Amazon is a
0: very small consolidation. It's still less than 3% of all grocery volume. Right. It got way too much PR. It was not as significant. And the fact that they were saying, oh, Amazon's going to compete with Walmart and Kroger now was laughable. Yeah. Online, they do. Online, yes, Amazon is 50% of all online sales. Right. But not brick and mortar. Right,
2: right. Of course, that those online sales are going to just keep exploding, I suspect, over the next 20 years.
0: Yeah, well, in terms of grocery, uh, there's a lot more market share from Walmart, which is a much bigger fish, much more dangerous. And then there's a lot of regional players like I live in Texas currently and H-E-B has the best online e-commerce program in in the industry. People love H-E-B, um, so it has very high rankings. Uh, but just in general, you know, Amazon knows what they're doing with e-commerce. They do these these prime days. They just haven't been able to figure out brick and mortar and they haven't been able to bridge. Uh, just grocery omni-channel, as we call it in the industry. Um, so there, it's sort of a um, stop and start with them. Not to say that it isn't um, dangerous, and that every other retailer shouldn't be watching them closely. Okay. So uh,
2: I'm I'm Joe Citizen here, and uh, all of this is happening almost invisibly to me. That there's a tremendous amount of consolidation going on. How, how many? How many? Companies are controlling four fifths of the of the groceries in America. I mean, it's it's a dwindling number.
0: Yeah, six or seven. So, um, Walmart between Walmart and Kroger, it's uh, close to forty percent. When you add in Albertsons, uh, it's about forty five percent. In Ahold, uh, which is Stop and Shop, um, and Hannaford, which you mentioned, that's fifty. So, you know, whatever that is, whatever I just said. There. When you add in Costco, you get it to sixty. Um, although I do have a soft spot for Costco, they treat their workers better and they're essentially a warehouse. So you're paying wholesale prices. Um, but they do, you know, their chicken program out in Nebraska is terrible for the environment, by the way. Anyway, so yeah, when you have six or seven companies, you're, you're close to 60% of the grocery industry. What that means is 60 cents of every grocery dollar spent in this country goes to like six or seven companies. Right. And each right. one of those and it's more and more consolidated over the decades, each one of those would be,
2: over 6% of the national grocery bill, which would be considered a monopoly.
0: Yeah, and monopolies, I think the saying goes, all monopolies are local. So on a, on a local and a regional level, you have a lot of different types of monopolies. In California, for instance, Safeway, Albertsons, Kroger, you know, Albertsons and Kroger kind of split LA, San Fran, like 50-50. So between the two of them, they're usually 40% market share between two, these two companies. And then you have a lot of independence in California, a lot of great chains, a lot of smaller chains. Uh, when you go into a place like Denver, uh, King Supers is like, I think, 60% market share. Wow. King Supers is a Kroger division. Uh, when you're in the C- Cincinnati metro, Kroger is dominant in Cincinnati, northern Kentucky area. That's their heartland. Uh, But when you go to public, uh, Florida, I call it Publix. When you go to Florida, it's Publix country. They're 60 plus percent market share in most of the major cities. When you're in Texas, HEB is 50 percent market share in Austin. Walmart is 20 percent. So in Austin, which is supposed to be weird and this alternative progressive blueberry and the red soup, BS, blah, blah, blah. 70 percent market share. 70 cents of every grocery dollar goes to two companies, HEB and Walmart. New York City kind of defies the odds. Like, there's no grocery chain that's more than like five or 6%. It's because they have so many independents, mom and pop, family businesses, and also service co ops like uh, Wakefern and uh, Allegiance and Key Food that are independent owner co ops, and and so on and so forth. Like, Seattle, as another example, is 50 plus percent market share between uh, Kroger and Albertsons. Uh, the Twin Cities is uh, 50% market share between Cub Foods, Target, and Walmart. So on a national basis, though, Walmart is still, I would say, the center of gravity in the grocery industry. They have monopoly uh, control of hundreds of metro areas, mostly smaller towns, smaller cities, primarily in the middle of the country, but also drifting out uh, into the upper Midwest and the Southwest and the Southeast. Um, Walmart has a deleterious impact on every aspect of the grocery industry. When we talk about pricing, you may not be shopping at a competitor to Walmart, but your grocery store competes with somebody who competes with Walmart, guaranteed. And what that means is there's price pressure on what their retail prices are, there's pressure on their wages downward, because Walmart, even though they've raised wages, still does not pay a living wage in any Metro. Living wages in most Metro areas are north of 50 grand. How many grocery stores can say that we, on average, pay our clerks $25 an hour, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks of the year? Probably not too many. That's why there's 75% food insecurity in the grocery industry. It was a study that came out about Kroger. So all these pressures come, though, from Walmart. And So we talk about the Kroger Albertsons merger. They admitted it like, we need to merge so we can compete with Walmart. They're not lying. That's probably the only thing they're not lying about, <laughs> but the problem, the problem starts with Walmart and how Walmart has gutted the economies of hundreds of towns and cities. It's gutted food systems. You know, you need to just think of the suction effect of how much Walmart supply chains are buying from around the world. They're a huge customer of just about every major brand and many smaller brands, many small and mid-sized farms and particularly larger farms. Walmart is just a huge presence in the grocery industry and you can't have any conversation about grocery unless you, you know, you give Walmart 30% of the time for 30 cents of the dollar.
2: Okay, I'm Joe Citizen and you just told me that there's this tremendous consolidation into a small number of hands. Why should I care?
0: Well, you should probably care because you're paying 30 to 40% more for groceries this year than you were in 2019. So the problem with the inflation narrative is they keep talking about inflation in single digits because it's the CPI, the consumer price index, which is the price of what you paid for today versus what you paid for this day last year. What that does is it clouds the fact that there has been single high single digit to low double digit CPI increase now for three years, meaning what we're paying for the same item now is 25 to 30 percent higher than what we were paying in April of just like 2019. And the reason why that happened is because of the consolidation in the grocery industry. So this isn't to say that there weren't supply chain issues. There were, I've written about that. Just-in-time inventory systems, which prioritize the needs of shareholders and and finance departments over the needs of uh, consumers are what caused much of the supply chain bottlenecks because everybody in the supply chain was holding very little inventory to keep cash off their balance sheets. And what that did was when there was a shock or multiple shocks within the pandemic, everybody at once started scrambling for more inventory so stuff got a little scarce there was a lot of holes on grocery shelves um, and then there were other material issues in the supply chain there was a shortage of pallets there was a shortage of semiconductors uh there was a shortage of corrugated cardboard uh pretty much it hit pretty much everything so there was a bit of pressure on prices at first but due to the consolidation particularly in i mean this consolidation at all levels of the food system i'll just say that But the two that we're going to talk about now are the consolidation in packaged goods, consumer packaged goods, CPG. And then at retail, there's something called price signaling. Most of the time, nobody wants to raise prices because there's too much competition. And so if you get a list price increase, you try to absorb it. If you're a retailer or just moderate it, you know, sort of spread it out over time and across a lot of products. But because everybody started getting these supply chain bottlenecks, which are pushing up some of their input costs at once, price signaling is essentially wink, wink, nod, nod. Oh, you're raising prices? I'm raising prices. Oh, they're raising prices? I'm going to raise prices. Oh, let's all raise prices now. And then what happened was they started raising prices, resulting in higher profit margins because they were able to raise prices above the rate of cost increases. So they're essentially skimming a little extra off the top. Retailers started doing the same thing. Retailers saying, "Oh, we're getting cost increases." Wink, wink, nod, nod. There's only a handful of these retailers. They're like, "Oh, well, um, Ahold's raising prices and Albertson's raising prices. So, I think I got a little bandwidth to raise prices too." Likewise, the publicly traded retailers were able to skim a little off the top to the point where, within the first six to nine months of the pandemic, despite all this, you know, you know, all this stuff about you know hazard pay increases, which most of these retailers didn't really want to do or do for very long. Shareholders made bank. The Walton family alone made $8 billion in windfall profits within the first 12 months of the pandemic. Amazon and Walmart both had profits go up, I mean, between 40 and $90 billion. Sorry, don't quote me on the exact, but it was a lot, a lot more than us mere mortals can really comprehend. Kroger was cutting billion dollar uh, stock buyback and dividends to their shareholders because not only were their profit dollars skyrocketing, but their margin rates. So remember what I talked about earlier, you got the fixed and the variable. My fixed rate at Whole Foods went up over the course of 10 years because of margin progress, you know, and how we bought and sold product. Kroger was able and a bunch of these other retailers and a bunch of these CPG companies were able to increase their fixed rate by, you know, half point here, half point there by skimming additional profit by raising prices above the rate of cost. So. When I first started writing about this about a year and a half ago, I didn't get really too critical uh, criticized I think people understand that I know my my the business well. But it really didn't have much of an effect. Like I had to write three or four articles before people started really oh it's clicking. However, there's an economist Isabella Weber who was writing about it before I did. She's out of UMass Amherst, so she's in your neighborhood, so to speak. Um, and she was called stupid by Paul Krugman. She was. Like really just like trashed by all these mainstream economists because she was documenting something that she calls sellers inflation. So everything I'm talking about in the food industry, Professor Weber was documenting across all sectors and showing how the profit and the price inflation now is coming from sellers because of their ability to leverage crisis to raise prices. Right. And so what happened in the food industry was all these prices went up margins went up so the margin rate in the grocery industry doubled usually it's like one to two percent it went almost to four percent in 2021 and early 22 really high unprecedented margins for the grocery industry net margins profit margins that is so what happened then was the shareholders started making windfall profits shareholder profits have been at the highest rates for the last two years since world war ii They peaked at like 16% one quarter. They've been between like 13 and 15% for the last couple quarters. They're they're coming down a little bit now because there's price pressure on supply chains and consumers are starting to say, yeah, forget about it. (laughs) We're not going to take any more of these price increases. Customer traffic is down, volumes are down, et cetera. But in the meantime, shareholders made bank, we saw the highest rate of stock buybacks ever. Prior to the Reagan administration, stock buybacks were considered stock price manipulation. Hmm, Maybe that's the case, you know, we need to think about that because stock buybacks, what they do is they then create an increase in the stock price for the company. So let's do the math here. Supply chain crisis, cost increases, price increases, then higher than the cost increase, meaning we're getting higher margins. Higher margins means we can cut more shareholder buybacks and dividends uh, to our investors, meaning you are raising prices, you're taking... Money out of the pocket of consumers to pad the portfolios of investors. I call this Robin Hood in reverse, you know, with all due respect to one of my favorite bands, Bad Religion. It's one of their songs. But Robin Hood in reverse is essentially multinational CPG retail companies padding stock investor portfolios and, you know, their executives, uh, you know, uh, portfolios too by raising prices to consumers. And what you're seeing now is because we're having, you know, these, uh, price increases over and over and over and over again, our consumers are buying less, food insecurity has skyrocketed, particularly due to the ending of SNAP uh, pandemic benefits and upcoming soon uh, pandemic WIC benefits. So food uh, insecurity is at least at 17%, but you know, over 27% of 18 to 44 year olds skip meals, people are eating less. And so what you're seeing at grocery retailers and the CPG brands are all saying this, our volumes are down. So their volumes are either negative or their volumes are tracking below the rate of inflation, which means they're essentially down. Um, Even though their stock prices are up because of the dynamic I just talked about, their prices keep going up and their gross margins had been going up. Uh, At this point, a lot of them are are seeing a a lot of margin pressure and the gross margins are coming down a bit. Um, But either way, it's been a bonanza in the food industry and the party is just about over because I, I think consumers in particular are like, this is crazy. Everything's so damn expensive now. And um, there's this website, Retail Watchers, somebody uh, turned me on to it, where you could look at receipts. People are documenting receipts from 2019 to 2022. And in some retailers like Walmart, their great value brand, which is the the country's largest private label brand, prices were up 30 or 40% on many items. Albertsons, some of their private label items like Signature and Lucerne, prices were up 70 to 100% in that th- three-year time frame. So when you hear the media narrative saying, oh, well, CPI has slowed down to 3.6% or whatever, 4%, that is the price you're paying today on the same item on average as last year. But that doesn't measure the damage to your wallet that has been inflicted over the last three or four years or the fact that the way that CPI translates into CPG, consumer packaged goods. Consumer packaged goods companies rate of price increases has continually outpaced the rate of inflation every quarter since the beginning of the pandemic, sometimes 2X the rate of inflation. And this was a study done by Nielsen IQ, which is, for those of us in the grocery industry, the largest syndicated data. Like this is like, for us, it's like a gospel. CPG companies have at times been 50 to 75% higher in the rate of price increase than the consumer price index, which is the quote, you know, measure of inflation. So when you ask me why consolidation is bad, what are you paying for groceries?
2: So you're, you're saying just on a on the simple economic basis, which is how people now consider antitrust. Well, our price is going up for consumers.
0: You're saying well, that, that's, that's the Robert Bork, Ronald Reagan school of antitrust, yes. That's very exactly. different than the Robinson Patton, uh, New Deal. Yes, yes.
2: So you, you wanna talk about that just for a moment?
0: Like, yeah, like I what, the was, what, what was the traditional model of antitrust? Robinson-Patman was meant to break up the uh, oversized purchasing power of large uh, grocery chains. It was particularly targeted at A&P, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, which at the time was 12% market share (laughs) in the 1930s. You you think, you know, I'm laughing because like Walmart's literally 27% uh, between Walmart and Sam's. Uh, So at the time, um, these two senators, Robinson and Patman, thought they could break up A&P by putting pressure on them to not have advantageous pricing relative to their competitors. So not negotiating exclusive deals or exclusive items or um, putting pressure on suppliers so that the supplier had to give A&P low price, but then make up on their margins. Remember what I said earlier about the seesaw effect, that goes for companies too. They had to charge higher prices to everybody else. So Robinson-Patman came at a time when the grocery industry was very diverse. Something like one quarter of all grocery employees, when I say diverse, diverse economically, I apologize, or diverse economically, one quarter of all grocery employees own shares of the companies they work for. There were more black-owned groceries than there are today. In fact, name one grocery chain that's black-owned. I could think of one, and I'm in the grocery industry. Just think of that for a minute, let that stew. But the other point about this is that Robinson-Patman's reinterpretation happened starting probably in the late 60s or 70s. In between the New Deal, and the 60s and 70s, what you had was the birth of agribusiness. So, after the New Deal, you had a new administration, the Eisenhower administration. They came in and said, Well, we have all this infrastructure for food processing left over from World War II that we fed our troops with. A lot of it's owned by these private enterprises. What if we just let these private enterprises feed the country, let them take over the role of quote, government and government, assuring that there was a cheap, safe, convenient, abundant food supply. And so in the 1950s, you saw the rise of agribusiness. So not just, you know, from we usually think of agribusiness as factory farms and monoculture, monocrop agriculture, agribusiness extends throughout the supply chain, the leading end of it being retail. And so you saw CPG companies, which are, you know, the consolidators of raw materials between the farms and the retailers, the growth of big CPG. General Foods and you know Kraft and Nabisco all came out and really consolidated in this time. A lot of them had existed pre World War II and had been um, selling in product to the U.S. government for the war effort, owned that infrastructure and leveraged that with the blessing of the USDA to become agribusiness. Okay, so in this time frame, then you had this shift in the marketplace where bigger companies, big business, was really taking an outsized role in the food industry you start having a little bit of grocery consolidation, but not as much. The really big CPGs called the shots in the 60s and 70s. They really were much more important. However, it started in the 70s, but really took uh, effect after the Reagan revolution where they said, well, antitrust isn't that important as long as the prices stay low. You can get as big as you want. And so there was a judicial revolution where um, not only regulators, but judges started reinterpreting Robinson-Patman to allow mergers and acquisitions across the board. And so particularly in the 80s and 90s, you see all these chains combining. Kroger picked up dozens of companies. Kroger at this point owns at least 30 chains. Albertsons, uh, you know, you know, up through Safeway. Even uh, in the early 2000s, Whole Foods, where I, when I was a regional buyer, picked up Wild Oats. So you see all this consolidation due to the reinterpretation of Robinson-Patman saying, well, as long as prices stay low, merger and acquisition is okay. However, you know, there's another school of thought (laughs) of which I am a part of that once you get to a certain level of consolidation, they can set whatever prices they want. and Nobody can do a damn thing about it. And that's what you're seeing now. There's not a lot of competition. But also, you you think of the effect that Walmart has had on all these small towns. Well, dollar stores are like the locusts that come after the plague. And, you know, um, there's, there's no shame at shopping at a dollar store. I grew up shopping at dollar stores and job lot and odd lot. You know, those of us who are working class are very familiar with dollar stores, but they're terrible. They're terrible for the economies. They're terrible in terms of what they sell. They're terrible for suppliers and farmers and who they buy product from. They destroy local economies. That to me is like the penultimate outcome of all this consolidation where the highest growth sector in retail, the most number of stores by far 38,000 stores is now the dollar sector, the dollar store channel. So we've seen this consolidation you know, across the board, and it's, it's really wrecked the food system. And a lot, of the, a lot of the issues that we talk about in the food system with what is sold and what is made and how it's grown and how farmers are treated and how farm workers are paid, to me, it all revolves around retail. Because retailers are the ultimate buyers and gatekeepers of that product before it gets to the consumer. And really, they, they really make a lot of those terms concrete of what gets sold, what it gets sold for. What gets forecast, and this, and I'll say this: this goes all the way back to A and P, in terms of how A and P leveraged its somewhat reasonable scale, like ten or eleven <laughs> percent in the 1930s, to say we only want ten varieties of apples. At the time, grocery stores sold dozens of varieties of apples, and now you're up in Europe and the Northeast, and you know the Common Ground Fair in Maine, um, you know they, they they always have their heirloom apple varieties. Well, those heirlooms <laughs> used to be mainstream a hundred years ago. It's because of the grocery stores and the consolidation of grocery that monocultures became the status quo because grocery chains said well we can only we can only sell this many varieties of something profitably and maintain inventories and so that has continued to um you know snowball that effect across all categories and to and so bringing this back to the conversation we had earlier you know why is it so um so much less apparent about you know retail supporting local and sustainable, you know, I say it's a lot of greenwash these days. It's because of this dynamic and the power that retailers have, the outsized power they have over supply chains. And it was my friend, Greg Asbed from Coalition of Immokalee Workers, he was on my podcast a couple of years ago. And he said, he said when the meat processing plant COVID outbreaks happened and you had hundreds of meat plant workers die, thousands got ill, and hundreds of thousands of meat plant community members got sick, maybe thousands more died, not one retailer stopped buying that meat from those suppliers, not one retailer put a line in the sand to say this treatment, these policies are unacceptable. We will not take it. You must implement safety measures. You must treat your employees better. You must make sure that people aren't getting sick or they have time to heal. No, they kept saying, make sure you send me more meat, send me more meat because the guy down the street has more meat than me. And I want meat at a better price. So this is the result of consolidation in retail. And I'll say this, like uh, Greg probably isn't aware of some of the co-ops and some of the smaller chains. CIW, Coalition of Immokalee Workers, is primarily focused on the big retailers. They've had a campaign with Walmart. They're still campaigning against Kroger and Publix. Whole Foods and Walmart actually buy CIW tomatoes to their credit. And he's focused on these big scale retailers. And I'm sure that there's some smaller chains who did think a little more ethically about their supply chains and their meat plant but the consolidate the meat plant workers but this consolidation and another example here real quick if you eat granola that you bought at a grocery store most likely that granola was produced using migrant child labor here's why there was a new york times expose of the largest granola and cereal co-packer in the us they have like 19 or 18 or 19 plants around the country they co-pack for everybody if you go to a grocery store they will have stuff from that co-packer and they had multiple instances of migrant child labor in their supply chain, in their facilities, making cereal and granola. It's created this like flurry of activity in, the, in retail now saying, oh, how can we prevent this? How can we make sure this doesn't happen again? Right. Well, it's, it's after the fact. So this is due to the consolidation, you know, the lack of transparency and the, the sheer buying power of bigger retailers and the fact that, you know, I, I don't want to say there aren't good people. But they're outnumbered by and outgunned by the financial demands, by the competitive needs against Walmart, um, and the fact that there's a really, really poor and weak regulatory process for overseeing uh, not just their uh, business models, their supply chains, their purchasing practices, but even how they set prices on shelf. And that's even vastly different than what we're seeing in other countries, where you have like a, you know a liberal government in France, a neoliberal uh, government, setting uh, price thresholds and putting pressure on big food businesses to lower prices. And you have a conservative uh, nationalist government in Hungary, which I'm no fan of, they've had price controls in effect for two years on key commodity items. The UK is looking at price controls. Um, And then you have other countries like like in uh, Italy, for instance, where the grocery industry is far less consolidated or in Norway, Finland, or Denmark, where number one, two or three market share in Norway, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland are cooperatives. Consumer cooperative chains are the largest grocers in these you know, developed countries of Northern Europe. We have a very different sector here, and a lot of it has to do with how out to lunch the regulators have been in this philosophy around you know, antitrust that's really not only antiquated, but truly damaging now to the consumers finally. In fact, I would say COVID-19 broke the promise of industrial agriculture. COVID-19 broke agribusiness. The promise of agribusiness was cheap, convenient, abundant, processed food. Well, it wasn't abundant. Shit was out of stock all the time. And it sure ain't cheap anymore. Prices have gone up 20 to 40% depending on where you're buying and what you're buying. So agribusiness has outlived its usefulness, if it ever was useful, except to the shareholders.
2: Okay. So uh, back to Joe and Jane Citizen for a minute. I I hear you. I'm convinced that this is a problem. What what can we do? And and I I know there's no magic bullet here, but but let's say first steps. What, what where do we go?
0: You know, I mean before I was at Whole Foods, in between all my retail jobs, I was also a community organizer. Um I wasn't very good at it. I'm I'm not very social, I'm very introverted. Um I much better at doing these kind of, you know, talks one-on-one. You have to get with your neighbors. First off, just, just get with your community. Say, hey, we're fed up on this. And then go to your rep, go to your federal rep, go to your mayor, go to your city council person and say, yo, what the fuck? Why are my grocery prices so high and what are you doing about it? This is a nonpartisan issue. Everybody is paying more for groceries. And it's because of these dynamics in the grocery industry, which you know were instigated by the conservative you know, Republicans and jumped on and, you know, fully supported by the Democrats, you know, the sort of neoliberal sector of the Democrats. Um, but now it's everybody's problem. So the first thing is start organizing, start talking with your neighbors, just five minutes a week. Say, hey, what's going on? What are you paying? Oh, man, that's wrong. I mean, I'm looking at my receipts from three years ago and I was paying like half the price. The other thing is, if you have the means and if you have the access and the location, to go shop in an independent. Shop at a co-op. Shop at a mom and pop. Don't shop at big business. Don't, you know, don't shop at the publicly traded retailers as best you can. Like I'm saying that's not the magic bullet. I don't believe in this sort of conscious purchasing as like the ultimate answer. If you have the means, try to shop at a cooperative, try to shop at an independent that is not consolidated or owned by the private equity venture capital, the Wall Street institutional investors. So I would say those are two things that I think anybody can and should do. All right. That's, that's good. That's good. That's a lot. You know, buy from smaller Yeah.
2: I, I, yeah. Pe- people ask me, what can I do? And I go, yeah, that's a tough one. I wish I knew just what do we a do. Little. If everybody does a
0: little, don't make it that a few of us have to do a lot. Everybody should just do a little. You are a citizen as Bertolt Brecht said, The job of a citizen is to keep their mouth open. (laughs) That's
2: good. Okay. Well, we've, we've run our, our hour and probably a little bit. So, uh, with that, with that good advice, I'm going to thank you, Errol Schweitzer very much for talking today. I think, I think we, we got through part of the first question. So, uh, we have four we'll, questions. We got we'll, through half of the first. Time. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, we need some follow-up, but thanks a lot.
0: My pleasure, Dave. It was awesome. Keep up the great work.
1: Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you are subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. So keep it up and leave us a rating and a review as well. You can find a video version of this interview on our newly designed website, realorganicproject.org, or on our YouTube channel, And you can join us every Tuesday for a new episode featuring voices from the organic movement. So see you next time.